Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I am very excited for this episode. I think it's going to be very interesting, very helpful, and very informative. Now, I want to give a little bit of a background before we start as to how I decided to speak about this particular subject. So if you have been listening to my other podcast, the Parsha Podcast, you know that over the past couple of weeks, I launched a email newsletter that I'm sending out to people who are interested, and the goal is to do it once a week. And the objective of this newsletter is to give a little bit more insights, more insights in the podcasts, other things that I'm thinking about, and thank God the response has been tremendous. If I have your email address, I already added you probably to the list. And if not, if you're interested in checking it out, go to rabbitwobby.com forward slash newsletter and you could subscribe from there. But in the first edition of this newsletter, I spoke about one of the big things that I'm working on, and that is how to try to bring the various strands of the Jewish world together. I was always trained to not view fellow Jews, our own brethren, to not view them as existing in different buckets. There's religious Jews, there's non-religious Jews, there's Israeli, there's French, there are Spanish Jews, there's Reform and Conservative and Orthodox and all the other denominations. I was always trained to view the Jewish nation as a single people, a single family, as indivisible as a single human body. And therefore, the idea of trying to put people in categories and boxes, to me, that was always anathema. And I'm also someone, thank God, who I have the opportunity as someone who grew up Shabbos observant, grew up in like a yeshiva environment, spent time in some of the greatest yeshivas in the world, spent many years in Israel, been religious and observed my whole life on one hand. On the other hand, thanks to what I do, I also have visibility into the general Jewish population at large. I have friends from every, so to speak, community amongst our people. So one of the things that I wrote about in the newsletter was how when people are sequestered almost and really only interact religiously with people of their own ilk, they end up being a little bit scared of people from the other side, so to speak, of the religious spectrum. I was speaking to a friend of mine, and he was raised reform, and he told me that he's often terrified of orthodox people, of overtly religious people, because you don't know what to do, you don't know protocol, what if you make a mistake, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer. And he told me it would be really scary for him as someone who grew up attending a reform shul, to go to an orthodox one. And he also mentioned specifically that if he was invited to a Shabbat meal in a Shabbos observant home, it would be a very nerve-wracking experience. You don't know what to do, what, what to talk about, how to behave. In his words, people have a phobia of orthodox Jews. And what I wrote in the newsletter was, that it's so ironic because as someone who has visibility in the other world and you find the identical fear amongst 
quote-unquote, orthodox and observant Jews, that they're terrified. What's going to be if I meet someone who's less observant and they ask me all questions and I don't know the answer? What if they ask me to prove things? They start to, to attack me with philosophical dilemmas. I don't know the answer. It's just, to me, so interesting how there are these two concurrent – not two, obviously, but there are concurrent Jewish communities. Each one of them really doesn't have visibility into the other and consequently – I feel like there is a sacred mission to try to do whatever I can to reunite the people as, as best as I could. One of the lines that I wrote in the newsletter is, quote, I can assure you that at Sinai, our nation was not denominationally segregated. And for us to achieve our peak, we must be reunited as one. Indeed, one of the hallmarks of the Messianic era is the reunification of our people. And I also mentioned, you know, 200 years ago, there were a lot of ideological battles amongst our people. You had the Reform and, and the Orthodox and later on the Conservative, and they used to have debates, and they were at odds with each other ideologically. But you really don't have that anymore today. I think that certainly in the last 50 years, shall we say, things are trending towards consolidation. And that's the way really it has been over the course of Jewish history. We do have schisms, we have, you know, factions and factionalism, and eventually things consolidate again, and we continue existing as one nation. We we don't have any splinters, so to speak, that last, that become permanent. So that was the theme of the newsletter. But what I had written at the end, I had proposed maybe... I'm going to record a podcast for people who are interested in going to the first Shabbat meal in a traditional home, in an observant home, to give them what to expect, what they need to do, what the process is going to be like. And also on the flip side of doing maybe a podcast for our traditional brethren to maybe guide them as to how to engage and interact with Jews who don't have the same traditional background in Jewish learning and practice. That was the proposal that I made in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago. By the way, you want to sign up for the newsletter, you can email me, rabbiwojim.com, or go to my website, rabbiwojim.com forward slash newsletter. And I got a tremendous response to this idea. I want to read to you one of the emails that I got because it really encapsulated what I want to do with this podcast. This is the quote. I was terrified. When I first went to Lisa's family for Shabbat dinner, I didn't help clear the dishes after dinner because I was afraid to make them treif, i.e. not kosher, by putting them on the wrong counter or some other well-intentioned but misguided efforts. They were strict about not stacking the dishes, and I was terrified of doing something wrong. They didn't want the bottom of one dish to scrub the top of another dish. I went to a conservative day school through eighth grade. I didn't know anyone who was serious about kashrut, about kosher, and even if they did, they would only buy kosher meat. They didn't take themselves so seriously. And here's the parable. Imagine walking into a meeting of a secret society. Maybe you read a brief pamphlet of the society, but that's it. And you might be expected to know the rules. Maybe yes, maybe no. You don't want to tell everyone that you aren't too familiar. You don't want to feel out of place. You don't know how it's going to work out. Are you going to be ignored? Maybe they'll throw you out. They don't announce the page numbers. I was terrified of offending, of causing a kosher, kosher problem, or just saying something silly. I suppose I never had a great mentor as we started adding more observances. 
So this is a description that I'm getting in an email of someone who's going through or who went through what I imagine is a very typical experience. We have our Jewish brethren existing or being raised in different communities and when they interact, when they interface, when they overlap, there is uncertainty because no one really knows how to behave. And thus, I want to try to do this today to go through a traditional Shabbat dinner, what it's like, what happens, why things happen, and to get more information out there in the public, maybe it will be helpful to someone. Now, I did get some good sound advice to not segregate it into two different episodes, one for traditional people who are hosting guests of a less traditional background and one for the guests themselves. I'm going to lump it all together and think of it as a guidebook of what a traditional Shabbat dinner looks like. And this episode will focus on Shabbat specifically, but I do want to pursue this general thread further of doing what I can and what we can together as a podcast family, what we can do to help unite our people. And I do think even someone who has always had traditional Shabbat dinners, I tried to pick up some insights, some best practices, some tips, if you will, to make a Shabbat dinner more meaningful, more exciting, and thus I think it'll be helpful to all. Now, I want to stress before we begin that every family, of course, is different. Every home is different. And not everything that we will discuss is true in every place, but we're going to try to be as helpful as possible. Now, obviously, we're currently existing in the middle of a pandemic, and having guests for Shabbat or for any time, it's something that a lot of people are quite prudently avoiding. So this may not be immediately relevant for everyone. Nevertheless, because of the response that I got to the newsletter, I figure I'll do it. It will be available in the podcast when Corona ends hopefully soon, and hopefully it will be useful to the people who are listening. So in general, what happens on Shabbos? I think on a more broad level, there's a mode of living that happens or that gets, you know, a a transition, if you will, from creating to consuming that happens on Shabbat. Tradition tells us, of course, that there are 39 different categories of work of creative work, and that we do create for six days. And on Shabbat, we cease creating, and we acknowledge that's only God, only the Almighty, who is the actual creator. On a practical level, what this means is that for 25 hours, beginning 18 minutes before sunset on Friday afternoon, and ending somewhere between 40 and 72 minutes after sunset, On Saturday, Shabbos observant Jews enter a different mode, enter a different rhythm of living, a switch, if you will, goes on, and they enter a Shabbat mode. Now, I think today it's becoming in vogue in the population at large, even the non-Jewish population, to have a technology sabbatical. You know, today we live in a world that has such a frenetic pace Everyone's got their devices and screens and everyone's guided. Everyone is manipulated by all the notifications and all the social media on Twitter and WhatsApp and all that. And there is a movement in the population at large to have one day a week 
where you have some rest and relaxation for your psyche, all this chaos and nonsense and hysteria of the world that we currently live in, take a break from it. Just stop it for a little bit. Go off screens for a day in the week. Maybe read an actual book. Drink a tea on the couch with your family. Play board games. Take a walk. This is a movement that's happening right now in the world at large. And the people who do it swear by it. Of course, Shabbat observant Jews have a religious reason for having a Shabbat, having a sabbatical. But I do think it's noteworthy that we live in a world today where lots of people, they have come to the realization that a sabbatical of some sort is good for you emotionally, it's good for you spiritually, it's good for your relationships, it's a weekly reset that enhances your life. So I think today more than ever in the world that we live in today, the benefits of a sabbatical, of a Sabbath, are more noticeable and more salient than ever before. So we enter this switch. And in a traditional Shabbat observant home, Friday is the busiest day of the week. It's all about preparation for the Shabbat. All the food for Shabbat has to be made before Shabbat. So we bake the challah on Friday. We buy the choicest food. The Talmud says you're supposed to eat meat and wine, prepare all the dishes. I always buy candy for Shabbos, soda for the kids. I want them to have a great experience and enjoy it and try to embed that warm, exciting feeling of Shabbat deep, deep within the hearts of the children. In addition, we don't eat immediately before Shabbat, so we come in nice and hungry. And Halacha actually states that you're supposed to place white tablecloths on your tables for Shabbat to try to give it that special feel. There's a custom as well to buy flowers to enhance the Shabbat table. The table should be set ahead of time. We should have nice cutlery and nice china. It doesn't have to be the nicest in the world. Some people even do plastic, disposable dishes. But even if you do plastic, use the nice fancy type, use the nice napkins, something a little bit nicer than the regular cheap flimsy ones that maybe we'd use during the week. The Talmud tells us the halacha is very clear about this on Friday afternoon. We should shower. We should shave before Shabbat. Cut your nails. In our family, everyone is bathed on Friday afternoon. And then as we approach the Shabbat, everyone gets dressed up in their Shabbat finest. If you are someone who wears makeup, you put it on before Shabbat. Why? Because we don't smear on thick substances on Shabbat. I do have this very distinct memory. You know, I grew up in the Northeast. And in the winter, a lot of people have like these chapped hands Everyone's got like parched, dry hands. And I have this very strong memory seared into my brain how every Friday all of my siblings would crowd around the moisturizer and would like take a healthy glob of this hand cream and smear it on their parched hands because that's not something you could do on Shabbat for a Shabbat observant person. And I just remember how I never wore any hand cream, never had any moisturizer. And I have this conspiracy theory that actually these products are designed to become like a never-ending cycle, that the cream, it has like this built-in obsolescence. It gives you temporary relief, 
but then something gets triggered that makes you need even more of it. So I never wore any of this stuff, never had any of this hand hand cream, but I have this memory as a little kid. Everyone wants to shake your hand. Once Shabbat starts, oh, have a good Shabbos. Everyone's shaking your hand. And I'm like, ooh, everyone's hand is so slimy because of all this hand cream and all this moisturizer. But the reason why they would do it is because this is something you do before Shabbat. It's part of your routine. Now, as a personal tip, something I like to do before Shabbat starts is I like to change the lighting configurations that creates a certain Shabbos feel, if you will. There are certain lights that I leave on and certain that I turn off and subliminally it creates a certain atmosphere, a certain environment that this is like the Shabbat lighting. Now also, just as a preliminary, there is an entire industry of products that were created to enhance the Shabbos experience. So of course, you know, we have a slow cooker, like a crock pot, because one of the things that we don't do on Shabbat is to cook. But we still want to have hot food, let's say, for for Saturday, for Saturday lunch or Saturday morning, for breakfast. And how do you have hot food if you cannot ignite a fire? So one of the solutions, one of the workarounds is a slow cooker. And there's also hot trays. We like to use like uh, a switch, like a light switch that has a timer in it or an outlet that has a timer in it, so it's only on for certain times. It's not on, let's say you don't have a hot plate that's on the whole day. It just goes on on the hours that it is programmed to, and that way you have it when you need it and not when you don't need it. Uh, there is, of course, a hot water urn that's very helpful if you want to have hot water in, in like, a, like an industrial-sized thermos, if you will, to keep the water hot over Shabbat. There is the Shabbos lamp, which is this ingenious invention where you have a light that has like a rotating cover on top that can be twisted to either reveal the light or obscure the light. So if you're a Shabbat observant family, you're not flipping on or off lights on Shabbat. So how do you have light? Let's say you want to read by your by your bedside. You want to read something before you go to sleep, let's say, but you can't turn off the light. So they have this Shabbos lamp that you just twist the top and when you twist it one way, it just – the plastic moves to the side and the light is exposed. So you have light but the light was always there and then you just twist the top and the light still stays on. You're not changing the electrical mechanism but you're just obscuring it because a piece of plastic now goes and covers the light and now effectively the light has been turned off even though you haven't done it in a way that violates the shops. Of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Torch Shabbat light switch covers that we are giving out for free. If you want, you can find in the description of the podcast a direct link and we'll send them to you for free. So Shabbat starts, the phones are turned off, the computers, the TVs are turned off, the lights and the air conditioning slash heating are set for the day. There are tissues in all the bathrooms and rooms ripping along a perforated pre-cut edge is one of the 39 prohibited categories of work. So toilet paper is not used. In our family, we like to rip some paper towels ahead of time as well. The light in the refrigerator has been set so it doesn't go off when the door is opened. The food's been prepared. Everyone is looking dashing. Everything is ready to go. And... We try to really get into the spirit by the time Shabbat candles are lit. 
the house is bursting with an atmosphere of Shabbos, and that mode, that rhythm that we talked about has been entered. I had a friend many years ago. He was someone who liked to fulfill the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. He was someone who loved to, I'm not judging anyone, but he loved to gamble on sports games. He was like a little bit addicted to that. So he would always gamble ahead of Shabbos, ahead of time. And he would submit his bets. And then he would take four different televisions and have them all going on in different rooms. But they were pre-programmed, one for each of the games that he bet on before Shabbat. So is there something wrong with that? Again, I'm not there to judge anyone. But when we talk about really maximizing the power of Shabbat and really getting into that zone, there's a certain atmosphere that we're told to try to distinguish Shabbat, differentiate it from the rest of the week. And yes, it's possible for you to find every loophole and to try to live your Shabbat day, your sabbatical, to live it like every other day. Theoretically, we could come up with as many loopholes as possible, but then I feel like we are targeting the wrong thing. Like if you have just the letter of the law fulfilled, but you don't have that atmosphere, that that warm feeling, that excitement, that energy, that mode, that zone of Shabbat, maybe you are missing some of the power and some of the meaning of this day. We look at Shabbat as more than just the strict rules, there's a certain spirit that we're trying to capture on that day. Now, one more thing I want to talk about here. This is a very valuable thing for the context of either having a guest who is coming to your home from maybe a less traditional background, or if you are a guest and you're coming to a more traditional observant home. So people have an impulse beautiful thing, to try to bring bring a gift for their host. Very nice thing. It's a wonderful thing when people do that. Now, it does create some tricky problems. So let's say, for example, someone wants to bring flowers to their host, a beautiful sentiment. The problem is, if you bring flowers to your host on Shabbat, there may be problems for your host to process, so to speak, that gift, I cannot take the flowers and put them in water on Shabbat. That will be a violation of one of the categories of work on Shabbat. So it's good to know, because again, there is a little bit of a gap in knowledge here. And it's, it's, it creates, of course, discomfort on both sides. No one wants to offend their guest. Of course not. But what are you supposed to do when they bring flowers for you on Shabbat? Because now you, you you can't really do anything with it. And you don't want to offend them. But regardless, if you reject their gift, you're offending them. And if you accept it, but let's say don't process it properly, then that too could be offensive. So that's why I think it's it's good to know this. This is just good information to know. If you want to, let's say, give flowers to your host on Shabbat, it's important for you to give it, to deliver it before the Shabbat actually starts. You want to give them, let's say, a wine or candy. If you are traveling to a Shabbat observant host, there may be halakhic complications with handling things that have crossed over 
halachic domains on Shabbat. So consequently, if you are traveling a great distance or if you want to get flowers, it's best to bring it before Shabbat. So Shabbat starts and we light the candles and at least in in my home, we go to shul, we go to synagogue for Mincha and Meirvin Arvit. And there are going to be some seasonal differences. In the wintertime, prayer starts a bit before sunset, so right when you light the candles, and it goes straight. You have Mincha, and then Kabbalat Shabbat, which is the special set of prayers that go at the entrance of Shabbat. And then you have the evening prayer, the Meiriv, the Arvit, which comes immediately afterwards. In the summertime, because sunset is much later in the day, most communities have early Shabbos, meaning that the Mincha starts about an hour and change before sunset, followed by Kabbalah Shabbat and Mayriv and the evening prayers, and thus Shabbat starts at a more reasonable hour. I don't want to encumber you with the details, but in effect, that would make Shabbat a longer enterprise because although we can preempt, so to speak, the Shabbat early. We can trigger Shabbat early. We cannot finish it until, like we said earlier, 40 to 72 minutes after sunset on Saturday. Now, in our particular community in Houston, Texas, on Friday night, both men and women go to shul. In some places, on Friday night, only the men go to shul. And on Shabbat morning, it's men and women. Different places have different practices, different customs, and that's just an important thing to know ahead of time. The prayer takes about an hour. Depends, you know, how much singing there is and what the, you know, what the pace is in the particular synagogue. And we walk home and we begin the Shabbat meal. But before the meal actually begins, there are some preliminary customs. Now, some people have things slightly differently, but typically, what happens is there are two songs that are sung before the meal starts. The Shalom Aleichem, which is a song that is comprised of four stanzas. Some people, they do it when they're already sitting by the table. Everyone's assigned maybe a seat. Some sit on the couch. In our family, we have a laissez-faire. You could kind of sit wherever you want for the Shalom Aleichem. And this is based upon the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 119b. The Talmud tells us that... After someone comes home from shul on Shabbat, on Friday night, there's two angels that come with him, the good angel and the bad angel. And if they arrive at the Shabbat home and the candles are lit and the table is set and everything's ready to go, then the good angel says, well, it's so beautiful this week. Next week, it's going to be the same thing. And the bad angel is forced to acknowledge that and say, Amen. And if it's vice versa, if it is not set up and the candles are not lit and the table's not ready and it doesn't have exactly the Shabbat environment ready to go, then the bad angel says next week it should be the same. And the good angel is forced to answer amen to that negative tiding. So that's what the Talmud says. And thus we have a song where we greet these angels and we welcome them into our home, and then we ask them for a blessing, and then we say, Tzaytchem may you go in peace. And there are different customs. Some 
seemed each stanza three times. That's my parents' custom, for example. Some seemed each stanza once and quickly recite each stanza twice. That's my in-laws' custom. Some seemed each stanza one time. Some omit the stanza in which we ask the angel for a blessing. Some find it theologically problematic. But everyone agrees that after the song is done, we say, say you leave in peace. Why do we kick out the angels? The answer is that this is an experience between the humanity and God. It's us and us alone with the Almighty. This is a commune between a Jewish family and God. And even the great angels are not privy to it. That's the first song, Shalom Aleichem. The second song is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. This is a ubiquitous custom that has been essentially universal since the 16th century, and that is to sing the Eishas Chayel, a song that recognizes the women of valor, which of course is there to recognize both the mother of the household but also Kabbalistically and homiletically we're told that Shabbat is the, so to speak, woman of the Jewish people. Okay, so we have those two songs, and then there's also an ancient custom to bless the children before the start of the Shabbat meal. And the Kabbalists explain the beginning of Shabbat is a very auspicious time for blessings. This is the time where the Satan and all the forces of evil don't have power and a person has an extra soul that's infused into them before Shabbat, the Talmud tells us. And consequently, we take our children. Now we have all the spiritual energy and we give blessings to our children, to our boys. We wish them to be like Ephraim and Manasseh, to our girls. We wish them to be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And we give them also the blessing of the priestly blessing. May God bless you and protect you. May God shine so to speak, the light of his face upon you. May God lift, so to speak, his face towards you and give you peace. With my children, after I'm done, I like to give them a kiss. But I have this game. As the kids get a little older, they say, oh, I don't want a kiss. I don't want a kiss. Don't give me a kiss. And they start escaping after I'm about to finish the blessing. And then I have this thing, which I do with them. I tell them, you know what? I'm going to give you none kisses. None kisses. That's my deal. And they come, they get the blessing, and then I grab them. I say, here's the nun kisses. And I give them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, none. Nun kisses. That's the game that I play with my children. Okay, so we've done all the preliminary stuff. We have the Shalom Aleichem. We have the Eshes Chayel. Songs have been sung. If there is a custom in this family to give the blessing, the blessings have been done. And now it's time to start the meal. And we start with Kiddush. Kiddush is the sanctification of Shabbat over wine. The bread is covered. The challah is going to be covered. And the reason for that is that normally in an ordinary standard meal, we always start with bread. But today it is leapfrogged by the wine because of the need to sanctify the Shabbat over wine. And therefore we are told to cover it, so to speak, to cover the bread, to shield it from the shame of the fact that it's not going first. It's also symbolic, we're told, of the manna, the Two challah breads that we use on Shabbat are emblematic or symbolic of the double portion of manna that the Jewish people received in the wilderness. And just as the manna was sheathed in dew, 
so too we have something that goes under the chala and something that goes over it and it does create a certain sheath in which we envelop the chala. So what's the process of Kiddush? The host typically takes a goblet, usually a silver goblet, fills it with grape juice or wine. The Kiddush is recited by the host and everyone else listens silently. When Kiddush is finished, the host will dole out little shot glasses for everyone. Now, the mechanics of how this works is that the host is representing all those in attendance with the blessing. Normally, when you want to consume something, you got to make a blessing yourself. But there is a halachic process in which one person can be the proxy, the agent, to do the deed on behalf of another person. And thus, the host, typically, who makes the Kiddush, they are reciting that blessing on behalf of everyone else. And thus, when they make the blessing, it is as if everyone else made the blessing by themselves. And therefore, just as when you are in the middle of making a blessing, you don't speak in the middle of the blessing. And after you finish the blessing, there are no interruptions between the blessing and the consumption of the food or drink. Therefore, when the host is reciting the Kiddush and then doling out the wine slash grape juice to everyone else, the guests and the audience, they are to remain silent until they have, so to speak, finished with this blessing and they have consumed a little bit of the wine or grape juice. Now, if someone does speak about non-related things, they would halakhically be required to actually make another blessing because the blessing has been invalidated. Now, this Kiddush is an actual mitzvah. It's actually part of the Ten Commandments to remember the Shabbat and to sanctify it. I like to think of it as like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. When you have something big, something grand, it has an opening ceremony. And Shabbat is very grand. It's the sign. It's the pact between us and God. It's the beating heart of the Jewish family and the Jewish world. It's part of the Ten Commandments. And thus, it too has a ceremony. Now, there are different customs for standing versus sitting. Our family's custom is to stand for the first half. The first half of the Kiddush, which is a quote from Genesis to describe what happened on day seven of creation. So that constitutes a testimony to God's creation. And therefore, when you are testifying, you're supposed to stand. But for the actual blessing of the wine and Shabbat, that's an ordinary blessing. You're supposed to sit for that. And thus, our family's custom is to stand for the first half and sit in the middle. But when I have guests, I always tell them, my personal family custom is do what you feel comfortable with. You want to stand, you want to sit, you want to stand for the first half and sit for the second half like I do. My kids would like to be snarky and clever. They sometimes, when I make that announcement, they say, oh, we could do whatever we want. We're going to do whatever we want. So when I'm standing, they sit. And when I sit down, they stand. Why? Because that's the way they are. That's uh, that's how Wolbies are as kids, certainly. Now, we take wine, and that's specifically the beverage to do this coronation ceremony, this opening ceremony of the Shabbat. And the commentaries explain that wine is a drink that gets people's attention. And it's very important when we're about to start the Shabbat to have people's attention. This is something big, something grand that is going to happen. 
And therefore, it's very important for us to pay attention and to think about what's happening. And thus, we have the wine to help us get in the right frame of mind. So the Kiddush has been done. Everyone's gotten a little shot glass. Everyone's had a little bit to taste of the wine slash grape juice. And now it is time to begin the meal and to begin with the bread or the challah. Traditionally, when you are about to eat a bread meal, you're supposed to wash your hands. And this is a ceremony. This is a process. This is a procedure that is very ancient. And the way it's done is you fill a cup, like a washing cup, and you lift it with your right hand, and then you pass it to your left hand, and then you pour twice on your right hand, and then twice on your left hand. And then you make the blessing, Asher, Kesham, Zavasivanu, Al, Natilat, Yadayim. And after you make the blessing, you dry your hands, and that is how you fulfill this mitzvah. Now, it's important to note that it's different than the other time that we're supposed to wash our hands, namely when you wake up in the morning. When you wake up in the morning, you're supposed to wash your hands, but that is not twice on the right, twice on the left. That is more alternating right, left, right, left, right, left, etc. Again, after we wash our hands, until we get bread, we are told to be quiet. If you do make an interruption, there is no need to wash again. But the same idea that is true with the kiddush, with the wine, that the blessing is not supposed to have anything interrupting it or intersecting within it between it and the fulfillment of the blessing. And therefore, because you're washing your hands to eat bread, and then there's the blessing of Hamosi to eat bread, we should not inject any interruption between the blessings and the fulfillment of the consumption of the challah or the bread. We're told specifically to have two loaves, which is to remember the manna. We got a double portion on Friday, and therefore... On Shabbat, we have a double portion. Now, there is an unusual custom that is featured in the halachic literature, and that is before you actually make the blessing of hamotzi lechem and arts, the blessing for the bread, you make a small slit in the challah to kind of mark where you're going to actually make the cut. And the reason for this is that we are trying to shrink the amount of time between the blessing and the consumption of the bread. And the idea is you give a little slit and you start the process of cutting, but you don't cut too much because if you cut too much, you're going to render the loaf into a non-perfect loaf. And we want to make a blessing over a perfect loaf. So you try to find that sweet spot where you give a little slit and you start the process of cutting and thus you minimize the amount of cutting that needs to happen after the blessing is done. But you don't cut too much because if you cut too much, then the blessing is not going to be rendered on a perfect loaf. You make the blessing, and we're also told on Friday night, the bread, the loaf, the chal that we're going to cut is on the bottom. So we have two loaves of bread that we're holding together. The one on the bottom is one that has the small slit and the one I'm going to actually cut. And then on Shabbat lunch, it's on the top. In addition, the Kabbalists tell us that after you cut the chali, cut the loaf of bread, you're supposed to dip it in salt. And the Kabbalists tell us three times. And that's reminiscent of the sacrifice in the temple that came with salt. Okay, now the meal has begun. And what does the meal look like? So I'll tell you, every family is different. Every host and hostess is different. There are different customs. You go to the Sephardic 
communities, you'll get fantastic, nice and spicy food. You go to the more Hasidic places, it'll be a Hasidic menu. Every family is different. Everyone has different things that they like. But if we could generalize, what I would say is that most Shabbat dinners have some sort of appetizer and then soup and then the main course and then dessert. And most often you would have, let's say, you'll have the challah, maybe be some sort of dips, and then you'll have some sort of fish. There is a Kabbalistic custom to eat fish on Shabbat, followed by soup. Most often will be chicken soup. And again, there are exceptions to everything, obviously, but I'm trying to give a sense of what it looks like for someone who's never been to a traditional Shabbat dinner. Often in the chicken soup, you'll have matzo balls or knadles. What is a knadle? A knadle is the Yiddish name for a matzo ball. And by the way, the word knadle is an English word because a couple of years ago, it was the winning word on the spelling bee. So we know knadle is actually a word in the English language. And then after the soup, you'd have some meat or poultry, maybe rice or potatoes or salad with varying degrees of fanciness and dessert, maybe some parev, i.e. non-dairy ice cream, cake, or the like. Obviously, not everyone follows this formula. Some people are vegetarian. Me, personally, I don't eat any fish. So in our home, we have, instead of fish, we have meat knishes. A knish is like a calzone, if you will, with meat inside of it. If you want the recipe, email me, rebelwijiba.com. Good advice for guests is that if you have any allergies or any food specifications, if you're gluten-free or if you're vegetarian, it's a good idea to let your hosts know because the host doesn't want to prepare a sumptuous meal and then you come, well, and I can't eat this and I can't eat that. It just creates discomfort for all. It's a good idea just – to let people know, give them a heads up ahead of time. As a host, if you are someone who has, for whatever reason, an unusual meal, I would probably advise that you convey that to your guests as well. Another important thing to mention is that the Talmud tells us that fish and meat should not be eaten together. Talmud says it is dangerous. It's not healthy. Now, is it actually not healthy today or not? It really doesn't matter because this is featured in the Talmud. Traditionally, we abide by it, whether it is scientifically true or not. And thus, if someone's going to have, let's say, fish and then going to pivot over to poultry and or meat, then you're supposed to not only have these two dishes not be present at the same time at the table, but also to make like a difference, so to speak, between these two courses. And some people actually like to take a l'chaim, to have a little shot of something, or to drink at least some water or something like that to differentiate between the fish and the meat. Okay, that's food. What about the programming? So first of all, in a Shabbat dinner that features both children and guests, it's important, I think, for the host to know that their priority should be their children over the guests. And maybe a good way to compromise, you know, children, they have a typically a shorter attention span than the adults. So maybe if they're there at the beginning of the meal, give them all their attention then And, you know, kids can't stay that long. And in general, it's probably not a good idea to force them to stay there if they don't want it. You want 
it to be a pleasant, enjoyable experience, the Shabbat meal, the Shabbat dinner, not something that they're forced to participate in. If they're forced to participate in and they don't want to, they are liable to resent it. So maybe the kids stay for a half hour or something like that. And then after they leave the table, they go to play, to read, whatever it is, take a nap. Then you can focus on the guests and give them your full attention as a host. In our family, our kids usually stay till maybe after the soup and then they go to play. Sometimes they stay later. Sometimes they come back later. But that's a good thing to note that as a host, you got to manage this that, you know, you can only give your full attention to, let's say, one of the participants. And I think it's a good rule of thumb to say that your children, they take priority, but most likely they'll probably leave the table, want to leave the table later, and you can maybe diversify who you are giving your attention to. So what is the nature of the programming in a Shabbat dinner? So first of all, I think that this is something which is the responsibility of the host. It's their job to have maybe some interesting conversation ideas, some discussions. They should have that chamber ready to go because they are running this meal. So some things that we do in our family, kids come home from school and they got all their Parsha sheets and their Parsha questions and their stories and they like to read it and they like to engage with that information. It's very helpful. I like as well to ask a lot of questions. So we like to play like trivia in our family. I ask the kids tough questions on on geography, on history, on the Parsha. We like to play the synonym game, which means you say a word and the kids have to come up with a synonym of that word. There's, of course, the legendary game 20 questions where you think of something or think of some word and the other people have to guess what it is and they can only ask you yes or no questions. They guess up to 20 questions. I also like for the adults, I subscribe to what's called the Parsha Challenge, parshachallenge at gmail.com. And that every week they send the document with questions and answers, but really tough questions on the Parsha. Uh, There's a book I recently bought called A Thousand and One Questions on the Torah. And we like to do that. We like to try to engage the kids with these kinds of discussions. But as I mentioned earlier, I always have candy for Shabbat. And one of the things that we feature in our meals is where I ask the kids questions. And if they get the answer correctly, then they get some candy. And of course, I have to tailor the questions to the age of the children. And sometimes if they're adults as well, I like to ask tough questions for the adults. But that way everyone can feel engaged and everyone has a say and everyone can participate in a way that they find enjoyable. I like to play also which one doesn't belong, where you list, let's say, three or four things, and the kid has to find which one of those three or four things is out of place. A couple of weeks ago, I brought a question to the table, and this is something I saw in one of the newspapers. If you could have three dinner guests, anyone from the beginning of time, any one of our sages, any people from our history, modern people, politicians, relatives, sports players, Who would you invite? Who would you reanimate, so to speak, to come at your dinner, to join you for dinner? So my son Akiva told me, he's like, I want my great-grandfather, that's Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, my grandfather, and Rabbi Akiva Eger, who was a great sage who lived in the beginning of the 19th century, and Rabbi Meir Shapiro, who started the Daf Yomi. 
So I thought about this question. What an interesting question to cogitate upon. And I said who I would invite would be the altar of Slabatka, Rabnasan Svifinko of Slabatka, who is such a great pedagogue. I would want to study his method. I would invite the Rambam just to be blown away by his brilliance and, and his genius. And I would invite my great-grandfather, who was Reb Avram Grzynski, who was told in the Holocaust, who's someone that I admire a lot and I would love to spend some time with him. My other son, Yehoshua, he's the resident expert in American presidents. I said, okay, which three presidents would you invite if you can invite any of them to your dinner? And he said, I think the correct answer, which is George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and the most interesting guest of all, which would be, of course, Teddy Roosevelt. Now, my brother, Rabbi Ari Wolby, at his Shabbat table, he likes to ask a question, like an ethical dilemma, and then he goes around the table and he asks everyone who's present to introduce themselves and to share their thoughts on this particular question. There's a great set of books called What If, which presents a scenario that has an ethical dilemma and you have to argue your side, you know, why you think it should be X or Y. I've seen something at other Shabbat tables where people go and say something that happened to them that week or something they're appreciative of or something nice about the person sitting next to them. There are a lot of things to talk about that would enhance a Shabbat meal. Is politics the best thing to talk about, to discuss at a Shabbat table? Sports, business, pop culture, not the worst thing in the world, but probably not the best thing to talk about. But I do think the responsibility of determining the conversation material at the table, that is actually the responsibility of the host. Think of interesting things, interesting conversations, something funny you saw, a nice story, maybe something on the Parsha. And there's no need to prepare a long, droning discourse, but something nice, something pleasant, something inspiring. That's the perfect sweet spot. Now, if you look at a Jewish prayer book or a Jewish book of liturgy, you'll find many Shabbat songs. And some families like to sing a lot of songs. Some of them don't like to sing songs. Of course, find what works for you. I invented a song for my children that lists the names of the parshas. So, of course, there's 54 different Torah sections of the Torah, 54 different parshas. And I made a song that goes to a tune that my kids are familiar with, and that's a way for them to easily memorize all the names of the parsha. Now, another pro tip here, and that is if you have children, and definitely if you have small children, they will make messes every single meal. It's not that it happens once in a while. It happens every single time. They're going to spill something. They're going to break their cup. They're going to fight. Something's going to drop. A dish is going to break. That's going to happen. And I think if you know that going in, you expect it, you anticipate it, then I'll make sure that you could actually process it properly. And of course, not to get angry, not to scream, not to yell. This is not the time and place for discipline. This is the time to have a great time with your family, with your guests. This is Shabbat. This is the experience of the week. It's supposed to have an atmosphere of pleasure, of total positivity. Now, after the meal is concluded, 
there are several other ceremonies that happen. So one of them is called the Maim Acharonim, which means the latter waters, which means essentially just like we washed our hands at the beginning of the meal, we wash our hands at the end of the meal. Now, some people have a custom actually to omit this particular process, and therefore they don't wash their hands, but many people do. And many people as well, in a traditional Shabbat home, they would have like a special designated cup that they would pass around, and everyone takes a little bit and washes their hands. That's not for drinking. That is just to make sure that your hands, or certainly your fingertips, are clean before you have the after-meal blessing. After we finish the meal, it's been a bread meal, and therefore we only make one blessing at the beginning, and that's the blessing on the bread, hamotzi. Once we make the hamotzi, all the subsequent foods are already included in the original blessing of hamotzi, and therefore we just make one blessing at the beginning and one at the end, and everything happens in between, with the exception perhaps of dessert, because dessert is not covered by the hamotzi blessing, but there are some details to that. Afterwards, we make the after-meal blessing, the grace after the meal, the berkat hamazon. It's very helpful as a host in the event that you are hosting a guest with perhaps a weaker grasp of Hebrew to have one of the benchers, one of the berkonim, one of the books that you're going to use to read the after-meal blessing to have one maybe like the NCSY bencher that has transliteration so that the people who are coming could follow and participate in the blessings. Now, as a guest, there are some nice things that you could do to be a better guest. It's a very nice thing to compliment the host and the hostess. If the food is good, you say how much you enjoyed it. If the food is not that great, you still say it. You know why? Because they're still hosting you to be helpful, offer to help serve, offer to help clean up, and also to be respectful. If you are attending a Shabbat observant home, it's best if you don't pull out your phone, let's say, during the meal. And even better than that, it would be really nice if you could not bring it in with you. I was once by a really large meal that was a mixed audience, shall we say. Some people were observant, some people were less observant. And there was this one individual, every time there was a new course, he quickly picked up his phone and took a picture of the dish. I don't remember what the dishes were. I think it was a highly Instagrammable meal. But still, I don't think it's so respectful. Certainly, it's not common courtesy for your host to do that, especially if you know that they themselves are people that refrain from phones and Shabbat. It would be a, a nice courtesy for you to do the same. I once had a guest at my meal and after the meal was over, my daughter came to me and said, did you see Abba? Did you see? He looked at his phone on Shabbat. So I told her, I said, what should I have done? Should I have told him about it? I don't want to, God forbid, embarrass him. Maybe he just doesn't know. But I think it's a nice thing, uh, if you are aware of this, to just be sensitive to it, be extra sensitive to it, and uh, be respectful of that. And at least when you are there as a guest, to conform to the standards of your hosts as best as you are able to do. Now, after the meal is over, just I think it's it's a good idea to train the kids, the children to help. 
In our family, we have one of my sons is in charge of taking in the cups, all the cups on the table, and one to take in all the bottles, and one to take in all the cutlery. Everyone has a job, and as they get older, they could get a, a more difficult job. And of course, it's nice to have their help, but it's also important to not raise spoiled kids, to not raise children that walk around with a sense of entitlement, and they should help, they should be helpful, contribute towards what happens in the home and on Shabbat. In early winter Shabbats, like we are right now in the middle of the winter, we like to play board games after the meal. We like uh, Katan, Ticket to Ride. I've seen families play Bananagrams. It's a great game that we like called Codenames. It's a great game because I think it really teaches kids how to think strategically and it familiarizes them with lots of words. But the bottom line is the goal, I think, as a host of a Shabbat meal is to make it as awesome and incredible of an experience for the kids, for the guests, something to be cherished and to be enjoyed. And I think if you have this basic outline of what a Shabbat dinner looks like, it is going to be less daunting for you as a guest. And I do think that as people who are more observant, we should strive to reach out and help as many of our Jewish brethren to introduce them to some of the amazing things that happen in a Shabbat home. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but still, it's a nice thing to welcome others into our home. And now I think, given that we've really covered what happens, and of course, there are little things that we can talk about, but in general, we understand the framework of what a Shabbat dinner looks like, hopefully, this will be something that is a little bit less daunting and terrifying for someone who's never experienced it. Most people are really nice. Most people are really sweet. Most people are just delightful. And people want to be helpful. And people want to make you feel comfortable. And hopefully, if you do get invited to participate in this, you should go because it'll be a great experience, most likely. Nah, not always, but... 99.9% of the time, 99.9% of the people are just lovely and delightful. And like I mentioned at the beginning, this is something that our nation, I think collectively should be working on, on getting as much of unity as possible amongst our people. That is something that's really a beautiful thing. We are like a big family. And families sometimes, you know, have dis- you know, disagreements and differences of opinion, and that's normal. But ultimately, we're one family, and we're one people, and like we said, we're one unified entity. So I wish everyone to have an amazing Shabbos, not just this week, but every week to come. As always, my email address is rabbitwobijima.com. And if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, go to my website, rabbitwobijima.com forward slash newsletter. Or you could also send me an email. I'm happy to add you to the list. Thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing Shabbos. Have an amazing Shabbat dinner. And I look forward to speaking to you really soon again.